right. Well, good afternoon. Good evening, everybody. Get my timer going here. All right. Well, I am so glad that everyone is here. I didn't know if you know this, but we're competing with a very important broadcast tonight. Like right now, I think. Does anyone know what it is? Yeah, the Oscars are on like now. I just made some of you panic. Pull it back in here. All right. Jesus is still Lord and it, and it, and it matters more that you're here. Uh, my wife and I were talking about this a little bit because it kind of hit me too. Um, but we were talking about like, oh, we're going to be at church. Well, maybe we can catch the end of it and stuff. And I was like, no, I don't want the end. I want the beginning because I want to watch all the dresses. I want to see all the women. He's like, yeah, but I'd only care about the last like, like 10 minutes of the Oscars. So the, there's the whole two and a half hour portion in the middle to three hours that I really could care less about. I don't care who got the best lighting for anything. You know, I don't care who's even really the best score, any of that stuff. I care who were the best actress, supporting actress, actor, you know, and best picture. That's it. That's all I care about. And then I'm done. Um, but let me ask you something. Has anybody ever watched the Oscars? For, who cares about the Oscars? Let me ask that. Anybody actually care about the Oscars? Okay. That means, yeah, that means most of you guys are kind of like me. You can kind of look at who won afterwards and it doesn't really matter. Uh, we used to throw Oscars parties and now I'm like, I could just care less. But, uh, but who has ever watched the Oscars and thought, man, this is really objective? You know, th- this is clearly, they were the right winners in all categories. Uh, nobody. Because really, the Oscars, the Academy, is a group of politically, socially, and financially motivated group of mostly rich, older white dudes telling the rest of the world who the best is. And who Leo DiCaprio, and then there's Leo DiCaprio. The guy's like this, who got nominated for six Academy Awards until he finally won. Six times. You tell me, this guy's an incredible actor. He deserved his Oscar way before any of that stuff. And he won it for The Revenant, which is kind of like, he fought a bear, and I think that's, that's it. And he had to eat a, li- a live liver. That's, that was, I think, the, the, the big thing there. But he's not the only one. Uh, Denzel had the same kind of thing. He was nominated for several. And, he, and does anybody know what the Academy Award he finally won was? Training Day. Being the bad guy. That's when he wins his Academy Award. Did you, see, like, did you guys even see Glory? That scene is incredible. That goes down in like film history. It's one of the best acted moments of all time. So I want to play a little game together in, spite, in, in, in the inspiration of the Oscars. We're going to talk about some Oscar snubs. So I'm going to show you a picture of what I, what I think, or generally speaking, we would say probably should have won Best Picture or something that year, and then see if you can guess what actually won it that year. Okay? All right, so we'll start with the first one. 2008, The Dark Knight. Okay, this movie was incredible. It doesn't matter. The, the Academy hates hero movies for some reason. But this should have gotten an Academy Award, without a doubt. Then we know what won that year, 2008. Any guesses? No, that was, that was like eight years earlier. Slumdog Millionaire. Okay, and it might have been a good movie. I'm not saying any of these movies are bad. But how many times have you watched Slumdog Millionaire? And how many times have you watched The Dark Knight? You know what I'm saying? You get where I'm coming from. Okay, 1996. Jerry Maguire got the snub. Does anybody know what won? Okay, I, I consider myself a film buff, and I didn't—I never even heard of this movie before. Shine. 
Exactly. You're probably just like me. I was like, I didn't even know that was a thing. All right? 1989. Do the right thing. Okay? This is like, this has like been a, a very culturally relevant movie since it came out. And you know what won that year? 1989? Has anybody been alive long enough? It was Driving Miss Daisy. Okay? Again, I'm not saying any of these movies are bad. I'm just saying, like, what do you remember the most? Okay, two more. 2014, the Lego movie got snubbed for best animated picture. Guess what won? Does anyone know? Big Hero 6. Okay, Big Hero 6 was okay, but this is like, this is clearly the corporations winning. It was Disney and everybody just automatically gives them things. But, I mean, everybody, everything is awesome. Lego movie was way better. Okay? Last but not least, and I'm still kind of sore about this one. 1999, Saving Private Ryan was snubbed on like all kinds of levels that year. Does anybody know what won it? Nope. That's like year, I think the American Beauty was like one or two years later. That was another big snub one. Nobody cares. Okay? Again, nobody cares. Saving Private Ryan is like the greatest war movie of all time. And who could care less about this? Like, I haven't even thought about it. You guys might hate me for this, but Titanic won a bunch of Academy Awards, right? When was the last time you watched Titanic? Answer, never, okay? Because Titanic is stupid. <laughs> and this will go into what I'm about to share here in a moment. Because, you know, in life, it can feel like there are very few things that are truly objective. Am I right? Especially in a world that feels so increasingly judgmental. You know, I, I know most of you guys probably saw this, but uh, two Christmases ago, we, uh, we gave my dad some, some sunglasses for colorblindness. It was a big deal and stuff. And we, and we took a video of it to put it on YouTube because a bunch of his family members chipped in to get it for him. So we put it on YouTube and in the last year and a half, it's gotten a million and a half views. Totally blew up. It would kind of like happen without even realizing that it was happening. Uh, and, but because of that, as cool as that was, it's come with a lot of attention. 916 people have opinions about what took place with my dad. All right? And, and I could not think of a more benign video. I mean, it's emotional. It's heartwarming. It's so cool to watch it all go down. The amount of people that have negative attitudes, and because of this, I get emails anytime somebody comments, so I have to read their garbage. And so people are like, like, oh, why do you wait until he gets cancer to get him these glasses? Good family. Or like, or like, why can't you just go ahead and give him a hug? You guys are cold and heartless. You know, kids are stupid. They ruin everything. Tell your daughter to get out of the way. Like, this is the kind of stuff, I'm like, this isn't for you guys. <laughs> Who are these human beings? But we know the internet is just like that. It's a bunch of bitter and frustrated, judgmental people. And in the world that we live in, I am very grateful that God is our ultimate judge. Amen. Amen. And that he is loving and perfect in how he judges. Uh, if you're visiting with us... <laughs> 
<laughs> if you're visiting with us, we've been doing a series to start the year called Greater Love. And the whole point of this is we've been putting an emphasis as a church on, on loving the poor and needy specifically. And it's been really good. There have been lessons that have been really heavy, but it's been so good for my heart to turn our focus and attention, even just as a family, forget as a church, but as a family, to loving the poor and needy. But as you'll see, actually, everything I've talked about so far, it actually connects to what's coming here. That as we've talked about meeting the needs of the poor, the needy, all that different stuff, part of what we're really going to be talking about today is that this isn't just like a good idea. This isn't something that was just kind of like, hey, when you get around to it, figure it out. What actually the Bible talks about is that this issue is an eternal issue. It's an issue that determines the state of our soul. And so the title of our sermon here this afternoon is called Loving the Least. I'm going to say a prayer and then we're going to jump in. God, I just really want to thank you so much for the opportunity that we have to sit at your feet. God, thank you that, that in, in such a world of darkness, you, you've called us out of that, you've loved us, but you've also called us to be a light in the middle of that darkness. In a world that's hurting, it is judgmental, God. People are, people are in, a, in, in dark places, but Father, that you've called us to represent the love of Jesus to the, to the poor, to the needy, but also to the lost and the hurting. And I really want to pray that you will really speak through me right now, allow your word to really uh, soften our hearts and really, uh, really get into uh, our lives in every way, shape, and form. Father, we love you. It's in your son Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to be reading from Matthew 25 as our main passage. You can go ahead and turn there, but I want to give a little background before we get there. Um, because I want to set up what we're going to read here. And what is actually going on in Matthew 25 is that Jesus is in the middle of the Passion Week. It's coming up, it's coming up soon for us. The Passion Week is Jesus' last days on earth before the crucifixion. That historically, actually, the, the, the things I was reading suggest that all this, Matthew like 23, 24, and 25, and I think 26 as well, all took place on Tuesday, and Jesus was crucified on Friday. Okay? Um, so this is pretty significant. So what we're really reading here is some of the last recorded things that Jesus tried to teach before the crucifixion. And in, ver- in chapter 23, he just got done rebuking the Pharisees. If you need a good heart check at any given time, read Matthew 23, the seven woes. Woe to you, Pharisees, the teacher of the law, you hypocrites. You know, if you're struggling, just read that for a little bit, and I'm sure something along the line will probably challenge you. But he leaves from that whole experience to go to the Mount of Olives, where his disciples follow him there. And while we're up there, we get some of these last recorded teachings before he goes to the cross. And really what it is, is he's trying to get his disciples ready for when he dies. He's trying to get them ready because he knew that there's a time coming when I'm not going to be here anymore. And so there are some things I need you to pay attention to. And what he transitions into in these teachings is the fun-loving topic of Judgment Day. Now, some of you just clinched up a little bit, I'm sure. Right? Judgment Day is not really a fun topic for us to talk about. The word judgment alone kind of makes us feel things. You can maybe even immediately go on defense a little bit. I have been stressing over this sermon all week, thinking about talking about Judgment Day. Because when you think about serving the poor, you probably don't think about Judgment Day. And as uncomfortable of a topic as it is, Jesus doesn't shy away from it. 
And it's so important. It's one of the last things that he shares before his death. And he basically is saying, look, a time is coming when we're all going to have to stand before God. And there's a reality that we don't usually like to think about. Usually not until death is kind of forced into our lives. Where somebody in our family, somebody we're close to dies, or somebody gets sick. We don't like to think about this stuff because the finality of Judgment Day is, is, is it's heavy. But the truth is that when we all meet God, some are going to be with Him, and most aren't. And Jesus discusses this, not because he wants us to be fearful, not because he wants us just to walk around condemned, thinking about Judgment Day, but rather to be ready and to be confident for what's coming when, when Jesus comes back. And he shares three parables about what the, the Day of Judgment is going to be like. He shares the parable of the ten virgins, the parable of the talents that we all know really well, and then he shares the parable of the sheep and the goats, which we're going to read, we're going to read today. And it's interesting because each of these three parables kind of hit something different about what God is looking for from us. In the parable of the ten virgins, he's saying, look, there's going to be some that are going to be ready to meet God and some that are not. The ones that are not, they're going to, they're going to think that they kind of got it figured out and not really plan the way that they needed to. They're not going to know what the bridegroom was looking for. And when the time came, the haunting words of, of, of that passage is when, is when they realized it was too late they're knocking on the door and he said, go away, I never knew you. That what they were missing was a relationship with Jesus. And then the parable of the talents. I know Aaron preached about that last year, at the end of last year, that, uh, that God gives us things that he wants us to use for him. He's blessed you with gifts, personalities, with things he wants you to use, but not to be selfish and just enjoy your own life, but to give for his purposes. And on Judgment Day, he's going to ask you about it. He's going to say, how'd you do? Did you use what I gave you for me? And really, all three of these parables are sharing, are Jesus sharing with the intention of helping us to be ready to meet God. This is what God is looking for when Jesus comes back, so we better pay attention. Let's pick up in verse 31. We're going to read... The parable of the sheep and goats. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and, and all the angels with him, he will sit on his glorious throne. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from one another as a, sheep shepherd, as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. And then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry, feed you, or thirsty, or give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger, and invite you in, or needing clothes, and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison, and go visit you? The king will reply, Truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers or sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. 
They will also answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did, do, you did not do for me. Then they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. We'll stop there. So I don't know how you're feeling right now, but this is kind of a heavy passage. You can see part of why I was struggling this week with getting ready for this. But he starts off here, Jesus starts off this passage by saying, look, the truth is all nations are going to have to stand before God. It doesn't matter your geography. It doesn't matter your skin color. It doesn't matter what your language is. Every single human being on this earth is going to have to stand before God. And what he's going to do is he says he's going to, he's going to divide everybody up into sheep and goats. Okay? Some handsome critters, aren't they? Now, there's a lot of words you could probably use to describe what you see on this screen. The words that probably don't come to mind are smart, wise, and self-aware. Right? It's part of what makes it humbling that Jesus refers to us as sheep an awful lot in the Bible. You, that's you and me. <laughs> don't know how that makes you feel, but that's just kind of the reality here. And, and, I looked at, and I looked this up because I was curious about this, about this whole sheep and goats thing. And some of the stuff that I was reading about this, you know, back then it wasn't common for shepherds to keep sheep and goats together, but sometimes they, sometimes they did, depending on the shepherd. And they would just kind of let, because they're similar, they would kind of let them graze together until there were certain times where they had to split them up. They'd have to take them for, for you know, to, to shear the, the sheep, to slaughter, to reproduce, Whatever it may be, there were times when they specifically had to split them up. And if you think about it, when you look at these pictures, you don't think that these guys probably had a clue of what was really going on at the time. Right? Do you look at this and just think, man, they're really dialed in to this whole dividing us up thing. No, it's just kind of going about life. Which, part of what's so interesting about this is the way that Jesus is describing the sheep and goats thing is that, look, the end of days is just going to kind of come. All of us are going to be together. People, we're all, we're all going to share in our community, our schools, our churches. We're all going to be in this together. And then this day is going to hit. This judgment day. You're not going to know when it's coming. And all of a sudden, everybody that you... You don't know who is who until that moment when all of a sudden it's revealed. And to think about that is kind of a heavy thing. Right? Like if Jesus came back right now... What would this look like? You can imagine if Jesus came in here and just said, okay, this side on my right, you guys are good. Left side, sorry. You chose the wrong seat. Okay? Josh still has some seats over here. You feel free to join him. I'm not going to be down here anymore, I promise. But to just look at this room and go, okay, this side's not going to make it. Could you have seen that coming? That that's how swift, that's how, that's how unprovoked and, and, and God is so clear in his judgment about who is saved and who's not. And the truth of the matter is, there's no way to know. I've heard this shared years ago, and, I, and it's just always stuck with me, that we don't know who out there is going to make it, just as much as we don't know who in here is going to make it. And there's a good chance that there's a bunch of people that are sitting in this room right now that are not going to make it when Jesus gets back. 
That should bother us. That should cause us to stir a little bit. And the determining factor, he said, what's really going to be the division of sheep and goats is how we loved what the Bible says twice is the least of these. When God looks at mankind and the things he's going to hold us accountable for and judge us for, one of the main things it says he's looking for here is how did we love the people around us? And as I was studying this, it was interesting to me that Jesus worded it like this. He says the least of these. He didn't specifically say how you love the poor, the homeless, the widows. He just says the least of these. And I was reading a lot of different things about this. And obviously in the passage we see some things here. People that are, that are in prison, people that don't have clothes, people that don't have homes. That there are some things that the passage points to, but that maybe Jesus keeps this a little bit more open-ended for a reason. Maybe the reason why he doesn't specify, I want you to take care of orphans and widows, is because he's trying to do something more for us. He's trying to expand our heart and our thinking. And, and as we know from the Bible and so many different things that we've studied in here together, that God is not so much interested in help this group of people. He's interested in helping our hearts to be transformed by what love is supposed to be. He doesn't want us to be driving around the desert looking for homeless people. He wants us driving around the desert looking for who's in need. He wants us walking in our jobs. Who's in need? He wants us walking around our very own church. Who's in need? This is the kind of love that he's trying to get us to. Not a specific demographic. And I think we've been great as a church. Even the things that we do, we do a lot of projects for the homeless, which is awesome. But God's never trying to box us in when it comes to love. This is supposed to be a lifestyle. A way of thinking. It's supposed to be part of our DNA. And it's such a big deal that God says, on Judgment Day, this is one of the things I'm going to ask you about. How did you love the least of these? There's two very quick points I'm going to hit with this that I think we can draw from this passage. Point number one is love for God means love for people. And neglecting people means neglecting God. At different times in the Bible, God makes it very clear that, there, that our relationship with God is directly tied to how we love each other. That they are unique. Like, I can love you and it not necessarily be connected. Like, I can love you and not love God and vice versa. But that they, are, they do have a symbiotic relationship together. That we won't love, if we really love God, then out of your overflow for your love for God, you're going to want to love people. And the same way, man, if you really love people, it's showing that you love God. I want to show a quick scripture here in 1 John 4. It says, We love because he first loved us. Whoever claims to love God, yet hates a brother or sister, is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister whom they have seen, cannot love God whom they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. This is a convicting passage on all kinds of levels when you really dive into what this is, 
what John's trying to communicate to us. And it starts by, we, we've got to understand that the process of love starts with God. You didn't just magically come out of the womb with this awe-inspired, Jesus-like love for people. It started with this incredible, unbelievable God that decided to love you. And God loved us first, but because God loves us, we need to love each other. And this is a very challenging thought. Because it's easy, if, you, if, you, you know, if we're trying to be a Christian, you know you ought to love God, right? Is that, that's kind of a given. If you're here, that means you know that you're supposed to love God. But God says that part of my love for him is reflecting how I love the people around me. And he matter of fact, he actually in this passage, he uses the word hate, which we can struggle with this word sometimes. You know, when you, you think about hate, you might picture somebody with a swastika tattoo or, or, just, or somebody from ISIS, so a dramatic kind of representation of hate. But that's not what hate actually is. You know, darkness is not a real thing. Physical darkness. You cannot measure darkness. Darkness is the word that we've given to the absence of light. We can measure light, but we can't measure darkness. Hate is not some dramatic opposition of love. It's the absence of it. That means you choosing not to love. You could utter no word out of your mouth. You could not strike somebody. You could not be racist or whatever it may be and still be hating because you're choosing not to love. And what God is going so far as to say here in this passage is that if I, if I choose to withhold love from someone, then I am choosing to hate them. And if I hate them, that means I hate God. And I don't know about you, but I don't like this. I want these two things to be independent of each other. Right? That there are plenty of people that bug me. That if I'm wronged or sinned against and stuff, I want to kind of have my relationship with God be over here and have my feelings towards you here. Right? And I know I'm not the only one that feels this way. Right? I want these to not have an effect on each other. Like, no, I love God. I just really don't like this person that's honking behind me. The light just turned green. Shut up already. Okay? I'm a sinner. Those are the things that go through my mind. But if this is the case, if this is what Jesus is trying to get us to in our hearts, what does that mean then for the relationships in this room? Let's start there. What does that mean if there's somebody in this room that you've got hurt feelings towards? An attitude. Nobody in here may ever know. But he does. And he's saying, you're sitting here saying all the words, you're, you're singing the songs, you're doing all this different stuff, but there's somebody physically next to you that is my child, I want you to love them, and you're choosing to hate them. What does that say about how you really love me? And it does actually have to start in here. Because if we can't do it in here, then what does that mean about out there? But on that note, what does that mean about out there? 
If this is how Jesus wants us to love people, and he says that this is a reflection of our love for God, then what does that mean about how we're supposed to be treating people? What does it mean about those, those moments that seem like not a big deal? The guy that's holding a sign on the street and you're wondering whether or not you've got enough time to stop and slow down. And, and I struggle with this all the time. Ever since I started, you know, I, I repented from two weeks ago. I started praying a lot more for this, for, for opportunities. And God's been giving them. And I've really had to struggle with this. Because there have been different times where, like, like literally, I was like, there was one time in the, uh, earlier this week where I saw this guy and I was like, okay, I've got to get to this thing, but I'm going to come back. I'm going to come back and I'm going to talk to him. I came back and he was gone. And I was like, mm. okay, all right, God, sorry. I'll, I'll try again better next time. But part of what he's saying here is that those seemingly insignificant moments, they matter. Matter of fact, this is a blow your mind scripture, okay? Hebrews 13.2. Do not forget to show hospitality to strangers, for by doing so, some people have shown hospitality to angels without knowing it. I don't know, like, like that, that just warps my mind. You know, but you hear these stories about people that like, oh yeah, I met this guy and I, you know, helped him out for a second and then I turned around and he was gone. Maybe that's exactly what this was. But part of what God is trying to say is that these seemingly insignificant moments, they matter. Those opportunities to love, they matter. Point number two, the last one. Eternal echoes. You know, one of the things that strikes me from this passage as we look at, at, at the response of the sheep and the goat people is how shocked both groups were by hearing about this. You, you know what I'm saying? That the people that were good, when Jesus said, man, you did all this for me, and they were like, wait a minute, whoa, how do we do that? What, what are you saying? How, how do, like, I don't remember a time where I saw you in prison when did we take care of this? And then on the flip side, you got the goat people that are saying the same thing. It's like, what, what, what are you talking about? We didn't, we didn't see you on the street corner and not clothe you. So there's kind of this, like, this, this disconnect there a little bit. But part of what this, what this is saying to me is that by loving the least, they didn't connect that those opportunities meant that they were loving their Lord. And this was something that didn't just matter for their life here on earth. It was something that was going to carry on to the rest of their eternity. Jesus was constantly trying to help his disciples to get this. That we struggle as human beings with thinking about the big picture of our actions. Good or bad. I'm not trying to like throw stones at anything. Good or bad. We don't necessarily think about the the big picture of our actions, let alone the scope of our life and what things could mean. Right? That's why we all have so many stupid stories about our teenage years. And there are several pictures of the disciples that we get from the Gospels getting frustrated about something that happened. And then Jesus would redirect them to the bigger picture. So this thing that didn't go your way, you know, when you, when you tried to cast out that demon and he didn't quite respond the same way, this was the bigger thing. This is what I was trying to get you to think about. This is what really mattered. I want to show one more quick scripture here with this. In Mark chapter 10, and what had just happened here is Jesus just got done dealing with the the rich young ruler. Very, very powerful interaction on a number of different levels. 
So this guy, you know, Jesus challenged him. He walked away from Jesus. He does how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. That whole thing. And the disciples are there freaking out. Because they watched this guy that they thought was good. They were probably thinking, this guy for sure is a sheep. He's got it locked in. He's been obeying the old, the, the, the Ten Commandments since he was a boy. This guy's rich. He's got a lot to offer the church. This is such a great opportunity. And then he leaves. And they're freaking out. So Jesus uses this as an opportunity to teach them. But it starts, it says, Then Peter spoke up. We have left everything to follow you. And I'm sure that statement was coming from, Jesus, we're trying to do what you want. How are we going to make it? Truly I tell you, Jesus replied, no one who has left homes or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or fields for me in the gospel will fail to receive a hundred times as much in this present age homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children and fields along with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. Jesus is saying, look, nothing that you do here now is missed by God. Nothing that you give up Nothing that you sacrifice for the love of Jesus is forgotten. What you choose to give up now, the things that you choose to do for me, God remembers it. Amen? That, that's an encouraging thing. We need, to, we need to be a little bit more excited about that. Your good deeds, the things that you give up for God, He remembers it. Amen? There we go. Okay, it's a little better. Still a little pathetic. And he says, it has an effect on our eternity for sure. He echoes that. He says, look, in the age to come eternal life, the things that you do, they matter. They'll matter for, you know, your gladiator thing, the things we do in life that go into eternity. But he also is saying here something even more awesome, not more awesome, but as awesome, is that it will have an effect on the life that we're currently living right now. This isn't just an eternity thing. This is something that changes your life now. This means that when we give our love, our time, our money, our energy, God keeps track, and not just for the scales of eternity, but for this life currently. And it's not a prosperity gospel thing. He's not saying, look, you give 10 bucks to a homeless guy here, God goes, all right, $100 are waiting for you over here. That's not what it is. When he says 100 times more, he's saying, look, I'm going to bless you in ways that you didn't even know were possible. Your relationships, the trust that you're going to feel with the people that are really trying to follow me, it's something you've never experienced in, outside of my kingdom. You can have the hope of a marriage. We've all seen terrible marriages. We've grown up around our parents and watched the disasters that have unfolded. He said, look, you can have something so much better in this life. You might have been abused. You might have been all kinds of things by your own parents. But you can have your own kids and write a completely different story for your family. That's the kind of stuff that he's talking about. I want you to even process for yourself for a moment. Think of times where you've given something and what you've gained from it. A time where maybe you did stop to to talk with a homeless person. A time when you felt afraid but you decided to share your faith and talk to somebody about Jesus when you didn't feel like it. And what God did with just that moment. 
We cannot underestimate the power of these insignificant little moments to show love. About a week and a half ago, I want to share this quick story here and we'll wrap up. We were on our way out, uh, out of the desert for a meeting and we had our kids with us. And as happens when you have to drive for an hour and a half, you have a four-year-old, all of a sudden an attack happens. I have to go to the bathroom! And you have to immediately change your plans. And so we're driving and I'm really frustrated because I did not want to stop. I'm like, can, can you hold it? Can you, can you figure this out, child? This is me talking to a four-year-old and all of my logic and sense. But we had to stop, and I was already frustrated, and so we pulled over. I think it was like in Beaumont or something like that. We pulled over at this gas station, and, um, and it just so happened that as, as Kelsey and, and, uh, and our daughter are coming out of the bathroom, there's this guy that had been sleeping underneath the awning overnight at the gas station. And he was rolling up his sleeping bag. And at that moment, you know, we, and as our family group a couple weeks ago, we made blessings bags, blessing bags, so we had three of them in our car. And my daughter, and this is just, you've got to love kids and how God uses them to humble you. My daughter sees him and goes, oh, we have to give him a bag. And so we go to the car and we grab the bag. And, I, and I'd already kind of started talking to him a little bit, but she ran over, gives him the bag and said, hey, these are for you. And there's toothpaste and there's, and there's a bar and there's, and, there's, and there's this and there's socks and there's all these different things. And my name's Peyton. I have a sister named Riley. She's just, just loving the opportunity to love up on this guy. And, and he was just eating it up, as you can imagine. And he was sharing even like he's got a granddaughter named Riley. And so there's just a lot of cool things. But I ended up getting a chance to talk to him for, for a moment. And uh, Kelsey took Peyton and put her back in the car. And as he's talking to me, he just started crying. Just saying, thank you so much for being willing to stop. You know, and he was bent over. I was trying to help him roll up his sleeping bag and stuff and got him some food. But he was just even just sharing with me how most people don't stop. And I can get in trouble for even being here. He had completely disregarded. And he kind of gave me a little bit of an insight into what, what he was going through. And we drove away, and you can imagine my spirit was in a very different place. And here it was, I had this terrible attitude. I was frustrated with my daughter. We're running late. You know, we're going to be late because we've got to stop and go to the bathroom. And little did I know that God was all setting that up because he wanted to give me an opportunity to meet John. I don't know if I'll ever see him again. Probably not. We got a plan to try to stop by this, the same gas station here next week to see if we run into him again. I don't know if, 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 how much of an impact that's going to have on his life. I couldn't even tell you. But God does. Every moment that we have as an opportunity to love is something God pays attention to. And it's something that will affect our eternity with God. It's something he wants to ask us about on Judgment Day. How did you do with loving the least of these? But the question, the question that for all of us to wrestle with here is, what does Jesus really want from all this? What is he really looking for? Don't worry about that. Because this has been really challenging for me, because it's exposed a lot of how selfish I really am. And how unloving I didn't realize I was. But God is paying attention. I want every single man and woman in this room to make it to heaven. 
And this is something that we don't want to just be known for in the valley. This is something that I want God, that God to be proud of us for in our nature because of how much we love him. And so, you know, I think it's good periodically to do a gut check for ourselves. God is saying, I'm going to ask you about this on Judgment Day. If you're smart, you shouldn't wait till then. You should probably ask it now. How am I doing with loving the least of these? And let's continue to grow in this as a church and how we love the people that are around us. Amen? Love you guys.